Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. growing number of Americans are embracing life outside the bounds of organized religion. Although the United States has long been viewed as a fervently religious Christian nation, survey data shows that more and more Americans are identifying as not religious. Doctors Joseph Baker and Buster Smith claim that despite there being more non-religious Americans than ever before, social scientists have not adequately studied the various secularities, and that the lived reality of secular individuals in America has not been astutely analyzed. In an effort to address this lacuna, they've published a book called American Secularism, Cultural Contours of Non-Religious Belief, in which they explore secular Americans' thought and practice to understand secularisms as worldviews in their own right, not just as negations of religion. Drawing on empirical data, the authors examine how people live secular lives and make meaning outside of organized religion. They address the contemporary lived reality of secular individuals, outlining forms of secular identity and showing their connection to patterns of family formation, sexuality, and politics, demonstrating that shifts in American secularism are reflective of changes in the political meanings of religion in American culture. Dr. Joseph Baker is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at East Tennessee State University and a senior research associate for the Association of Religion Data Archives. Buster Smith is an associate professor and department chair in the Department of Sociology at Catawba College. And they are here with me today to talk about their latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans. And I'm joined today by co-authors Joseph Baker and Buster Smith to talk about their new book, American Secularism, Cultural Contours of Non-Religious Belief. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. We usually start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to work in your field. All right. Um, I'm Joseph Baker, uh, and I uh, got interested in sociology uh, early in college. I was always interested in behavioral sciences. Um, and always enjoyed the study of people and um, the ways they interact. But interestingly, uh, my undergrad curriculum didn't have anything much to do with religion. And I'm from Southern Appalachia and religion influences a lot of life here. So I basically went into sociology to kind of do uh, the empirical study of religion. And I came from, this is Buster Smith. I came from basically the opposite approach. So my undergraduate work was actually in religious studies and mathematics. And I realized by about the point that I was graduating that the combination of those two was the empirical study of religion through sociology. And so I uh, was really drawn to sociology precisely because it was an avenue or a method of studying religion uh, in a, a more precise way than I had otherwise been doing it. Um, can you give us a sense of the background of this book? How did you both end up deciding to work together on the project? Yeah, sure. We were, uh, Buster and I were graduate students at the same time. 
uh, Baylor University. Um, and one of the things I was interested in in the empirical study of religion was in some sense flipping that question around and looking at the empirical study of people who were non-religious um, in various ways, but would explicitly identify in some way as not religious. Um, and I uh, was interested in looking at this question and Buster had a similar interest. Um, and in some ways I would say we started one paper on it and one paper led to more questions than answers. And then it kind of snowballed and we just kept working on it. Yeah. And we were both approached um, about writing this, which is in a volume of a uh, set of other books on the topic. And I think at least from my perspective, um, I'm at a school where we're expected to do a lot of teaching and not that much research, and it would have been pretty much impossible to do it solo. And so the fact that we had an established track record of working together, and I think working together pretty successfully, meant that a joint collaboration was a really good choice for this. So the book begins by giving a bit of an overview of the increasing state of non-belief in the United States and how this is perceived or responded to, especially in the arena of political rhetoric. Shall we start there? Yeah. Um, so from the background on this, the, the big uh, picture that we were coming toward this topic was that secularity, meaning secular people, um, are often talked about in social science theories and particularly, say, theories about secularization, but they're rarely actually studied. So classical theories of secularization will talk about society becoming more secular or ways that happens, but it rarely actually is interviewing secular individuals or looking at survey data. Um, so we wanted to try to make an empirical approach on this, um, and we had a few different goals. Um, and one of them was to um, kind of set up a theoretical framework for trying to study secular people. Uh, and then there were some other ones that were more narrative based, like to try to answer the question. A lot, uh, we see a lot in the news now uh, about the increase in religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people saying they have no religion. Um, and so the short story on that is that in 1990, about 8% of Americans said they had no religion, whereas today um, it'd be closer to about one-fourth of Americans. And so that's a, a tripling of the proportion of people who say they have no religion in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, and so part of the thing we wanted to do was address how and why that happened. And the big, the biggest part of that story was politics. So that's why we decided to kind of open up with the idea of how political rhetoric about secularism, uh, first of all, what it looked like throughout most of the 20th century, um, which was basically, it was rarely mentioned. And when it was, it was negative, say in a reference to godless communism or something like that. Um, and because it was basically absent from positive rhetoric that made Obama's use of uh, mention of non-believers in a longer list of religious pluralism, really interesting and important, um, in his inaugural address and, uh, 2009. So we decided to kind of set that up because it was this really interesting watershed moment in political rhetoric, but also because it was signaling this larger shift that had happened that we wanted to, to try and explain um, largely through politics. So in your first chapter, uh, you lay the groundwork by defining a typology of secularisms that includes atheism, agnosticism, non-affiliated belief, and cultural religion, kind of as the theory you mentioned you were want looking to set out. Uh, so can you explain what you mean by those terms? Sure. So one of the important things in all sociological work is to define what your boundaries are and what you're studying and not studying. 
And so there are really important consequences in terms of who you choose to include in categories or who you exclude. And so we actually went through a wide variety of possibilities to try to get a sense of what would be an effective and a useful and possible way of doing this. And what we ended up coming up with was basically using three key characteristics of people. So the first of them is belief. So we have a category for atheists, which is people who uh, do not believe in God. And in some sense, that's one of the most straightforward categories. It's oftentimes when people have a sort of caricature of secularism, that's what they tend to assume everybody falls into. And so we have that group. Then we have agnostics, which is people who don't think it's possible to uh, know or not know the existence of a higher power or of God. And then we also use identity. So we use people who say that they're not affiliated uh, with a religious organization or don't have a religious identity. And so we refer to that group as the non-affiliated believers. And then the fourth category is based off of behavior. So we have a group of people who show up as being what we refer to as culturally religious in that they have a religious identity, identity. they affiliate with a religion, but they don't actually do the things like attend and or pray that we would expect would go with uh, that religious affiliation or that religious identity. And so uh, for the data that we use for this, this is from 2010 uh, general social survey data, we find that 3% of Americans are atheists, 6% are agnostics, 11% are non-affiliated believers, and 8% are culturally religious. And so that gives us the groundwork. Basically, for the whole rest of the book, we tend to go back to these categories over and over again and see how this group is uh, similar to each other and how this group is different within that category of American secularism. Uh, so next, you explain your theoretical approach to understanding questions of religiosity uh, in comparison to the way that other scholars have done so in the past. You write that your goal is to, and I'm quoting you here, approach meaning-making from both inside and outside of organized religion. So go ahead and tell us about that. Yeah, so here what we wanted to do, um, we're trying to do some conceptual work to set up the idea that we want to study secularity um, and meaning-making and uh, the sociological and psychological patterns of secular identities Um in a way that is neither uh, denigrating it nor necessarily promoting it. We're just trying to sort of see what's going on. Um, and in some ways this is straightforward, but in other ways it's really tricky uh, because the sociology of religion and sociology in general uh, does not have the best track record of combining uh, a solid conceptual apparatus with the empirical study. As I said, before they tend to be kind of separated you sort of have the theoretical tradition where secularization is discussed and then sometimes you have some studies of uh non-religion and survey data although those were fairly rare until recently i should say um, but we're trying to come up with a way to put those two things together and basically what we do um is we want to get people who are in what I like to call the of religion field. So sociology of religion, anthropology of religion, psychology of religion, religious studies, um, to look at uh, secularity in relationship to uh, religion and to see how those things sort of influence each other and um, are in context with each other. But to do this under sort of the old conceptual apparatus of the social sciences, we would have to do something like say, well, atheism helps you make meaning so it's actually a religion. But that's more misleading than helpful. 
I mean, there's some parallels there, but I mean, people who are saying they're atheists are explicitly saying I'm not religious. And then we're going to try to say, oh, actually, it's like religion. Um, so to get around this issue, what we do is we say that people in the quote unquote of religion fields are actually interested in studying this larger idea of cosmic belief systems, by which we mean some sort of uh, systematic way of trying to make sense of your place in the universe and looking at big questions of, say, suffering and death um, and look at the different ways that people may do that. So people can do that through organized religion in various ways. People can do that outside of organized religion through explicitly secular identities and communities. So basically what we do is we, we have this larger uh, concept of cosmic belief systems and then say inside of that, we kind of have the study of organized religion. And what we want to do is sort of push forward on the study of secular identity and secular communities. Um, and so what we do once we sort of set that up is say secularity is a social status and it's an achieved social status. So it's something um, that people can self-identify with and choose to do or not. Um, and then what, how public they are about that identity can have consequences for how people then interact with them. And so the meaning of uh, what it, uh, sort of mean socially to be secular varies by context. It's one thing to be an atheist in the Bible Belt and another to be an atheist in the West Coast or in a Scandinavian country. Um, and people can have more or less salience to secular identities. So I may be an apathetic atheist and think, I don't believe in God, but I also don't think about it very much. Or I might be um, an atheist who's active in secular organizations and promoting secular causes, and it may be uh, foregrounded in my identity. Um, so if we understand secularity as a social status, that allows us to study it in ways that we've studied other identities. And then it also sort of highlights the intersection with other statuses that are really important. So race and ethnicity, social class, gender, sexuality, nationality. Um, and so we think this provides um, a good sort of theoretic, theoretical uh, framework for explaining secularity and also for connecting it to larger issues in society. Uh, so chapter three takes a turn into the political history of the United States, starting with the early federal separation of church and state up until the emotionally charged era of the Cold War, which you kind of already mentioned before with the godless communism. So can you give us a brief overview, which I know is asking a lot, but or uh, highlights from this historical trajectory? Yeah, well, the that chapter itself is... Um asking a lot of itself, I would say. In some sense, we're trying to take a survey overview of the development of organized secularism from the founding of the Republic to about the 1950s, which, of course, it would be many volumes on its own. Um, but what we're really trying to do is kind of um, take a bird's eye view on the history of organized secularism and find the common themes in it and some of the important um uh, ideological dimensions of it that then you can still see in contemporary secularity today. So when we're looking at history, we're um, sort of confined to looking at organized secularism. You have uh, what secularism that's recorded by people in some way, um, but we don't have surveys or anything, so we can't know how many people in the population were apathetic about religion. So we're looking at more organizations that form with some sort of explicitly secular goal. 
Um, so in doing that, we kind of trace the roots of secularity through beginning with um, deism, in particular Thomas Paine and his writings on deism, which in some sense brought kind of philosophical ideas about deism to the masses. Um, and going from there, then we look at, uh, quote unquote, free thought organizations that um, arose and in most cases also receded in American history. And there have been quite a few of these sort of periods where um, secular organizations would uh, grow and flourish and newsletters would be published. Um, and so we kind of look at the history of this um, through those organizations. Now, in terms of ideology, the themes are really interesting in the sense that even going back to early deist movements or later movements that are more explicitly secular, say um, agnosticism or something like that, these movements tended to be very politically progressive on race and gender, um, very much in favor of individual freedoms, uh, particularly about speech, religion, and the press, and they tended to be really pro-science. Um, and so if we look at contemporary secular movements today, a lot of those themes are still there. Now, that's not to say they're exactly the same, um, but it does show you in some sense that contemporary organized secularism is drawing on that history. Um, and secular humanism today still plays on um, a lot of these themes. Now, what's interesting to us in some sense about the history of this is that um, organized secularism was more or less trying to compete with organized religion for adherence um, and people who would donate time and money and resources to these voluntary organizations. And it must be said that uh, throughout history, most of them have um, not succeeded. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. Some of the most important ones are low birth rates among secular people. They're having fewer babies. Even when they're having babies, there's less uh, effective socialization of sort of raising people who follow in the same tradition. And then there's the most important one is there's a lot of internal heterogeneity and difference among different aspects of uh, what, sort of the umbrella of free thought. It gets a lot of different, it's a big tent. And so some People inside that tent are focused on criticizing religion, and other people are trying to work with liberal religious people on political causes. And some factions are saying we should be, say, explicitly political and be a political party, while other factions are saying, no, 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 we shouldn't engage with politics in that way. It should be about sort of a revolution of the mind. And so these groups are always kind of at odds. Um, and and organizationally, it makes it extremely hard for these groups to succeed. And so they tend to sort of flare up and then die back down. Um, but some of the ideas they put forward into popular culture then do outlive the organizations, particularly these ideas about individual freedoms um, and sort of this pro-science attitude. Um, so really what we're doing is um, trying to bring uh, a bird's eye view to the history of organized secularism and essentially catch us up to the 1950s and 1960s, which is where we can pick up the empirical story in a much more thorough way. So chapter four is concerned with a more contemporary context. You explain that modern survey methods have allowed for a more granular insight into the beliefs and practices of individuals than were available before. So can you tell us what trends the data point to now? Yes, definitely. I mean, I I hate to say this about our own book. Maybe Buster will disagree with me. Um, but I think this uh, chapter on trends is one of the more important ones just to kind of 
for insight into the larger social transformation that has been happening with regard to uh, secular populations. Basically, what we find is that there's large growth of people who are saying they have no religion. Um, the majority of people who that is are in that non-affiliated theist category. So they're saying they have no religion. But if we ask a question about God, they're still identifying either with traditional theism or some type of deistic sort of higher power theism. Um, and so part of the larger story where we see um, lots of people for different sides saying that um, America is becoming more secular, that is true in some sense, but it's also not um, sort of the atheism that people usually, as Buster mentioned, first identify with secularity. So the increase is concentrated among that non-affiliated believer group, the believing without belonging trend or spiritual but not religious. Um, there has been some growth in non-theism, but it's uh, much less than there has been in the non-affiliated theist group. So once you drill down into the data and you're looking at uh, these different groups, you find that the increase of people who are saying they have no religion is really strongly concentrated among political moderates and political liberals. And so uh, essentially what you see is over time a response to the religious right and the Republican Party's Southern strategy to use religion to win back the South um, through explicit discussion of uh, religion in the public sphere, through promoting culture wars issues, uh, usually about sex and gender, occasionally about other things like evolution, but sex and gender is really kind of the heart of those issues. Um, and this emphasis on sort of quote-unquote family values. Um, and so what you really start to see is this response or this reaction against that uh, marriage between the uh, sort of political right and conservative religion, Protestantism in particular, but also um, conservative wings of, say, Catholicism. Um, and so what you see is that uh, people who are in the middle, uh, political independents, people who consider themselves liberal over time are sort of reacting against this um move of religion into the public sphere and disaffiliating. So across the time span from 1990s until the present, uh, what we call the apostasy rate, which means for however, uh, for let's say you have for every hundred people raised in a religious tradition, how many of them drop out as adults compared to how many of them stay inside the tradition. So the rate of people who drop out we would call the apostasy rate. So the apostasy rate for major religious traditions, such as uh, forms of Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, the apostasy rate for all those traditions went up dramatically during this period. So you had people disaffiliating, and the people who were disaffiliating were largely in the middle or to the left of the political spectrum. So we call this... Uh, process or this transformation, the great abdicating, sort of the controversion of the great awakening, um, sort of an unchurching of America in some sense. Um, now, this doesn't necessarily mean that secularism or people who are non-religious will continue to grow because, again, the birth rate and the low birth rate among secular people constrains their growth relative to religious organizations which have higher birth rates. Um, so unless the apostasy rate continues to go up, then there may be something of a ceiling on 
how much more, how many more people will claim no religion, at least proportionally speaking. But at the same time, we wouldn't have predicted that this uh, transition would have happened 30 years ago. So it's possible that there, um, we haven't reached the high tide of people leaving yet. Um, but the short of it is that changes to uh, the way uh, religion was used in politics mostly is what's driving this transformation in sort of the religious landscape. Hmm. That's an interesting interpretation I haven't heard before. Um, okay, so next you focus on the characteristics of the people who make up these various secularities, looking at things like attitudes about organized religion and private spirituality, supernaturalism, life satisfaction and happiness, and views of science, mapping patterns of divergence and correlation onto your four secular categories. So please tell us about that. Okay. So the one disclaimer I'll make for the remainder of the entire book is that it's a 300-page book, and so there's a lot of specific findings. So we did um, we used quite a few different surveys here and looked at a lot of information. But one of the things I think is most interesting in this chapter is we look at people's views on religion as well as on religious institutions, so both the idea of religion and specific religious organizations. And we find that there really is a lot of variation that exists within the secular categories. So for example, atheists have the least religion in their own lives and they tend to be the most opposed to it, which probably is not very surprising um, in, in their perspectives. But then agnostics tend to have much less opposition both to religion in their own personal lives, as well as religion as an institution or religion as an organization. So right away, we start to see it's useful to draw these divisions to understand it doesn't mean the same thing to be secular uniformly. Um, then for the non-affiliated believers, one of the interesting things with this group is they're the most likely of all the secular groups to describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. And so this is a term that is becoming more and more common for people to use, but it's specifically within this category that these are the people for whom they still feel some attachment to the supernatural or some attachment to spirituality, but they don't necessarily want to have that attachment to religious organizations or religious institutions or what they might see as some of the baggage associated with that. And then finally, for the culturally religious, they're most likely to see religious to consider themselves to be religious, but not spiritual. So they actually are most, most likely to, in some sense, oppose the identity or the connection with the idea of being spiritual and maintaining that connection to being religious or religiosity, in spite of the fact, as mentioned earlier, this is the group that isn't actually doing the behaviors that we would typically associate or um, expect to relate to being religious. Uh, we also look at connections to satisfaction and happiness. And one of the things that I found really interesting um, in doing this work is that there's this general set of studies that oftentimes we'll look at, well, who's more happy, people who are religious or people who are not religious? And that automatically loses a lot of the nuance that's actually going on. And so what we tend to find is using this idea of cosmic belief systems, as mentioned before, is much more accurate. So if you look at how certain people are about their cosmic belief system, whether that's their cosmic belief system is a traditional Judeo-Christian view of the world or an atheistic view of the world, their certainty actually is what predicts their happiness or their satisfaction in life. So their level of certainty as that goes up is associated with being more satisfied uh, with their life. And so those sorts of nuances, I think, 
um, we're kind of able to pick up on because we're not assuming that everybody in this category is the same or that everybody in this category is monolithic uh, to some extent. And the chapter also talks about um, people who are secular, their views towards science, their view, views towards the paranormal. So there are a lot of other specific storylines that we try to pick up on in here, but that's sort of some of the general ideas that we look at in terms of the belief systems of people who are non-religious. Yeah, I want to follow. I want to follow up on that for just a second to say that the um, the certainty thing. We've got a. Uh, I have a paper right now that's uh, it's at the revision stage, so hopefully it'll be out sooner than later. But basically, showing that we look at some health outcomes, physical health and mental health. So um, basically, physical and mental well being all around, and we inside of that look at some specific things on um, psychiatric symptoms. So um, anxiety, uh, obsession, compulsion, these sorts of things. And the short story is that the thing we were finding for happiness and satisfaction is follows for health too, which is that uh, atheists tended to do better on physical and mental health than either other secular people or uh, religious people. Now, the caveat there is that people who are religious and participate in their communities at high levels do get benefits from religion. Um, but atheists overall did really well uh, relatively speaking, on these health outcomes, uh, agnostics look pretty much the same as religious people, and that non-affiliated theist group did very poorly on the health outcomes. And so it looks more like they're, whenever there's a disjoint between, say, communal participation and belief, that's where there's higher health risk. So if you lump all those groups together, it might look like secular people actually have worse health outcomes, but if you split them apart, you actually find that atheists do better while the other group it has elevated risks. And so splitting these groups apart is absolutely necessary for understanding how uh, secularity or religion relates to health and well-being outcomes. So next you examine how religiosity intersects with power and cultural capital in the United States. And here we get into a topic that I think is one of your areas of expertise, Joseph, because you look at how in some contexts being secular is in fact framed as deviance. Uh, but you also look at other familiar axes of social power, such as race and class. So maybe you could speak to that? Yeah, and that's exactly right. Um, that is uh, something we were trying to um, use as a, a framework or to look at this was the idea of deviance. And by deviance, um, anytime we study something that's deviant as sociologists, we're not trying to further the idea that this is bad. But we do, um, we, in, in the book, we show survey data that shows people distrust and dislike secularists in general and atheists in particular. And there's studies showing that Atheists experience higher levels of discrimination if they're out and open about their atheism. Um, and so um, it's a, basically a social fact, at least in the United States, that um, secularity is still viewed negatively. And so then the question is, if it's viewed as this deviance, then how does that affect its relationship to these other statuses? Um, and in particular, in chapter six, we're looking at um, race and ethnicity and also social class and kind of looking at these things in conjunction. And so we're applying this idea of intersectionality, the idea that stigma or statuses that are stigmatized may have overlapping forms of oppression or interactive forms of stigma that are different than those issues on their own. So for instance, there's a stigma um, for being a person of color there's a stigma for being an atheist, but in some sense, there's kind of a double stigma for being a black atheist. 
Um, and so, and this is borne out in the data itself. And so you find, for instance, really low levels of African-Americans identifying, self-identifying as atheist or agnostic. So if they are uh, African-Americans opt out and are non-religious, they're much more likely to be in that non-affiliated theist group. Um, and so there you can see this. And we use the example of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and we also uh, look at Langston Hughes as examples and use sort of these narratives about how there's this double stigma um, for black humanists. Now, that's not to deny that there is a rich tradition of black humanism. Anthony uh, Penn, one of the editors of the book series, has written um, great stuff on black humanism. But just to say that in the general population, it's pretty rare or it's, it's at least less common than it is among, say, people who identify as white. And so you find this um, interesting dynamic where to be uh, a black humanist, you run the risk of both being stigmatized by the wider society and also perhaps even being stigmatized by, say, the black community where um, the black church is still very important. And so these dy- this results in some interesting dynamics and patterns that you find um, for secular identity. And then we also identify a couple of really interesting um, patterns of identification for Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans. For Hispanic Americans, we find that um, people who identify as uh, Latino or Latina in some way, um, they are much more likely to be secular if they are English speakers, uh, especially if they're English speakers only, or if they're bilingual than if they are Spanish speaking dominant. Um, And also, uh, much more likely to be secular if they have higher levels of social class. So there's basically kind of this assimilation pattern to um, secularity where people who are more well integrated and higher levels of status, those are the individuals more likely to be secular, uh, at least among Hispanic Americans. And then among Asian Americans, there's a fascinating dynamic by the generation of immigrant. And so first generation Asian Americans are much more likely to have Eastern religious identities um, from place of origin. But in the second generation, we find much higher levels of people um, claiming no religion. In some sense, they're uh, the generation that's kind of sandwiched between the religion of their parents and the religion of their new country where Christianity is very much um, still tied to the idea of citizenship. And then in third and later generations, you find Asian Americans identify with Christianity at the same rates as white Americans. And so the second generation has this really elevated level of claiming no religion, um, essentially as this as a transition generation to um, third and later generations, which are much more uh, Christianized. So continuing in the theme of deviance uh, and social sanctioning, chapter seven looks at how gender and sexuality factor into the picture when organized religion sets itself up as the arbiter and guardian of traditional morality. Yeah. So the same patterns of intersectionality um, that are present for racial and ethnic minorities, you also find for women who are much less likely to self-identify as atheist or agnostic. And if women are secular, they're much more likely to end up in that non-affiliated theist category. Um, and this is largely because the social penalties for overt secular secularism are greater for women compared to men. Um, and this is, as you say, is largely because religion has long been this arbiter of traditional morality for women, uh, partic- particularly in regard to notions of sexual purity. Um, and so 
we um, we use the example of Francis Wright to kind of narratively frame this. Um, and I have to say, of all the different things in the book, the narrative of Francis Wright is probably my favorite thing, um, which is kind of an odd thing to pick. Um, but Francis Wright was the first uh, woman in the United States to be an editor and also to be an orator and to speak to what were at the time called, quote unquote, promiscuous audiences, which were men and women gathered in public together. Um, and so in the 1820s and 1830s, she was editor of a free thought newsletter and she was a public orator. And she openly criticizes strict gender roles uh, and marriage laws that constrain women at the time. Um, and she not coincidentally in any regard also openly critiqued religious ideas and organized religion as barriers to human progress, particularly in the areas of race and gender. Um, and so I, when you read Francis Wright's um, work, it's grounded in sort of a sophisticated utilitarian philosophy and also in the American Constitution. Um, and she is easily a century ahead of her time. I mean, the rhetoric that she is using in the 1830s will not actually become effective for about a hundred more years um, because early women's movements had to sort of work through the idea that women were somehow categorically different than men. And she just sort of abolishes that idea and says, no, all created equal. And we're going to work from there. Um, and so her life is extremely tragic. She's vilified mercilessly by politicians and clergymen. Um, but her thought is fairly luminous for the time. Um, and so, her story, sad though it is, is really favorite. my favorite in the sense that we get to introduce it to a new audience um, and show uh, this interesting dynamic between secularity and gender um, and an interesting narrative. Now, when you actually get to the sort of the empirical part of this, kind of going back to the idea of um, contemporary America, who identifies and how do they identify, we do find that some uh, – Characteristics make it so that women are equally likely to be secular to men, and the characteristics that um, lead to that are high levels of education um, and political liberalism. And so here we again see that political theme come back, um, and you essentially here are finding this dynamic about people who are willing to um, question traditional mores about gender and sexuality, and there you find uh, relatively even levels of secularism despite the greater penalty for women compared to men. The other place you find it, um, higher levels of secularity are among women who identify as lesbian or bisexual. Again, this questioning of traditional gender roles leads to this higher level or is correlated at least with this higher level um, of secularity. And so um, there are, and I mean, you could do a whole book, I think, about just gender, sexuality, um, and its relationship to organized religion and secularity and that dynamic. And so um, we're only scratching the surface of it here, um, but there are, there's a lot more to do in this particular area. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that story to light. I'm going to look at that closer. Um, all right. Next, we look at the uh, impact of social networks and family on later views. And you point to the um, that the religious emphasize early inculcation with children. So you explore non-religious upbringings and ask what causes those with religious backgrounds to become secular later in life. So can you tell us about your findings? 
Sure. So I, this is not something that's in the book, but one of the things that I talk about a lot in my introduction to sociology class, and this oftentimes becomes a sort of running joke, is that if you're not sure what the answer to a question in introduction to sociology is, you should just say socialization. And so socialization is basically just learning about or being taught how to be part of a culture. And that's one of the big things we find in this chapter is that we're looking a lot at the both push and pull that people experience both towards secularity and away from secularity. And if you look at the broader society, things like media or peer groups or education, there's oftentimes a general push in the American culture towards religious affiliation or at least some level of religious identity. And we're suggesting that um, some of the pulls into secularism come from parents, from children, from spouses, from friends. So those very close, intimate relationships that people have. And there certainly are cases where people are reacting against religious socialization that they have as a youth. There are oftentimes cases where people will talk about their narratives as being the reason they're secular now is that they're avoiding or going against something that they found uh, to be lacking as a child. But the vast majority of cases that we find People are coming out of either uh, explicitly non-religious or secular backgrounds or um, sort of implicitly non-religious backgrounds, and then they stay in that category. But interestingly, a lot of life course events are really important in understanding who ends up being secular and who doesn't. So one of them that's pretty well established, and we find a lot of evidence for this, is that uh, marriage is oftentimes a point when people who might have been secular might actually return to religion or enter religion for the first time. So by choosing a spouse, by going through the process of becoming married, that can be significant. But one of the ones that at least to me was uh, really interesting and sort of unexpected is that having children is oftentimes associated with being more religious, but we actually find the process of having kids, the way we refer to in the book is that it causes upward generational influence, that children themselves actually oftentimes lead people back into religion. And in particular, one of the things that stands out is that even for people who themselves are not religious, they oftentimes have a desire or feel a need to let their kids be part of some sort of religious training or religious teaching or religious upbringing. Um, and oftentimes what you find is that people are talking about this idea if they want to give their kids a choice. They want to give their kids the option and they feel like it would be restricted to not. So one specific uh, data point that we find with this is that even among atheists, one quarter of them actually send their children to some form of religious training. So for the people who in some sense are the most secular, who are directly themselves saying that they're not religious, that they don't believe in God, they still are sending their kids to things like Sunday school or bar mitzvah classes. And that there's an even higher rate um, of this than actual private religious behaviors. So we also look at things like whether you pray with your kids, whether you engage with in Bible study with your children. And it's actually more common for people who are secular to send their kids into this sort of public religious training, religious uh, upbringing as a way of giving them an option. And one of the results of this, the fact that things like marriage and having children are really closely related to individuals' level of religiosity or individuals' uh, secularism, is that it means that you're actually more likely among this group to have people who aren't getting married. You're also more likely to have people who get married at a later point. You're also more likely to have people who don't have kids, or if they do have kids, to have fewer kids, or if they have fewer kids, to have kids at a later point. So all of these kind of build on each other to actually help explain why we see this group 
uh, growing in the United States, why this group tends to sort of self-reinforce itself. It specifically is lacking those life course choices or those behaviors that we oftentimes see as being most closely linked or uh, connected with religiosity. So in your last chapter, you turn again to politics, this time focusing on the current state of affairs, and you point out that the large and increasing numbers of non-Christians in America are considerably underrepresented in the halls of power, but that we're starting to see the growth of a few organized secular groups. So can you give us an overview of today's political situation? Sure. And one thing to point out here is that... um The data that we're drawing from for this book mostly is from 2007, 2010, 2012 to some extent. And so when we talk about current, we're talking about uh, sort of you have to jump in a time capsule to be precisely current here. But this chapter really sort of comes full circle. So we're connecting back to chapter four, where we're looking at those general trends, as well as talking a lot about some of these ideas of deviance that were brought up earlier. And so one of the general things that you see is that particularly in the public realm of politics, we can see there are a lot of issues related to secularity, what it means to be publicly political and publicly religious or publicly a-religious. And so one of the interesting things that we start off this chapter looking at is there's a 2014 Pew study that found that 53% of uh, Americans said they would not vote for somebody who was an atheist. So over half of Americans said that would be automatically something that means that they're not seen as an eligible candidate In comparison, 35% of Americans said that they would not vote for somebody who had engaged in an extramarital affair. So apparently having an affair is less important than being an atheist. 22% would not vote for somebody who had used marijuana. And so things like drug use and relationships are actually things that are seen as being less significant than somebody's uh, religious affiliation. And even more striking Uh, 24% of those who themselves are not affiliated would be less likely to vote for somebody who's an atheist over somebody who's a a theist. So even within this group of people who are secular, it's really significant, really important in their own political choices, who they would select, who they would feel comfortable with as a leader. And you can see a lot of these effects in terms of what the actual composition of politicians looks like. So it's not just people's attitudes, but it leads into their behaviors and their voting patterns. And so Uh, When we wrote this book, there was a single member of uh, the House of Representatives in the United States who was uh, self-identified as being unaffiliated. Interestingly enough, this is actually one of the things that sort of shifted uh, over time, and it still is not representative of the population as a whole, but there are currently four senators who self-identify as being unaffiliated. And so we're already starting to see sort sort of some of these shifts show up in the broader political climate or the broader political realm. The other thing that's interesting is we look at attitudes about political issues. And so on a lot of political issues, things like um, attitudes towards welfare, there actually is no difference really between people who are secular and people who are religious. That on those types of issues, it doesn't really seem to matter whether they're in this broad category of secularism or this category of religiosity. But there are specific issues where it matters a lot. And this connects back to the previous chapter looking at gender and looking at marriage and family in that issues around gender, issues around sexuality, issues around women's rights, issues around family, there are actually much uh, bigger differences that show up. And in general, people in the secular categories tend to be much more liberal around these issues than both the broader population and in particular people who are religious uh, in the United States. And so this actually helps explain a lot of that rise of secularism. So again, going back to earlier in the book, these issues sort of becoming the benchmark issues that the religious right 
uses as breakpoints or as sort of culture war points to help explain why people, especially of a younger generation, who would feel like these are issues that are important to them if being religiously part of the religious right means that you're religious and you're uh, conservative in your political views, then that must mean necessarily in some sense that if you're more liberal, you shouldn't be religious because that label's already been taken up, that label's already been used up. And so we kind of come full circle here looking at how these specific political attitudes, these specific political behaviors help explain some of these trends. Well, before we conclude, I want to give you both an opportunity to give our listeners a final idea to think about on this topic. Uh, If there was one thing that each of you found the most surprising or the most important takeaway from your research that you would want us to remember, what would that be? For me on this one, uh, it's that secular people deserve the same dignity afforded to religious people. And for this, I mean both for the public and by scholars. Um, for the public, the idea that seculars are immoral is propaganda. It's not really supported by empirical facts. And again, once you drill down into these categories, there's a lot of nuance and things going on. But just the idea that to be secular is necessarily to be amoral is, um, you know, it's a, it's a position, it's a polemical position, but it's not borne out by any facts. Now, conversely, for secular individuals and organizations, I think a lot of times to get things done, if you're talking about political um, efficacy, you're better off not stereotyping religious people from the other side, which often comes back from some um, prominent voices for secularity, just making sort of lumping all religious people into the same group and stereotyping them as all being the same. Um, But there are many religious individuals and organizations who share secular people and organizations' political goals, and a coalition is has a much stronger chance of success, uh, at least for social change, than attempting to dispel all religion or trying to, you know, do away with religion or treating all religious people with some sort of level of contempt. And so I think it goes both ways on that. And I think it's important for uh, both sides to recognize that. And one of our interviews in the politics chapter um, is from Lori Lippman Brown, who was um, the first spokesperson for the Secular Coalition for America. And I think she says it best. And she basically just says, we're just like everybody else. Um, and so social scientists need to take heed. The public should take heed of that. Um, and secularity should be on equal footing with religion. And for scholars, we should look at those two things in relationship to each other. Um, and so while I support the idea of, say, what sometimes is called secular studies, I don't think that should be cut off from religious studies or other studies of religion. I think they need to be in dialogue. And I think as scholars, we need to be willing to study both without privileging one or the other. So I think my main takeaway from this, it was not a surprise to me. I think this was a big motivation for writing the book in the first place, was just the idea that uh, the secular are not a monolithic group, that oftentimes people would think of it as ridiculous or silly to take whole sets of people, say, all college graduates and assume that they're the same or take all people who drive cars and assume they're the same. But frequently, especially in the the research, but also in common dialogue, people will treat the secular category as all uniform. They'll say, oh, all of those atheists or all of those non-believers. And one of the key things we're trying to reinforce over and over and over again is that actually splitting up this group, understanding what nuances exist within the group 
is really important because sometimes those within group differences are actually larger than the differences that exist between people in a particular secular category and people who are religious in general. And so I think that's one of the really useful things about the book is that as people read it, they can get a sense of how many differences actually exist within this group. What do the different what are the different ways or experiences that people have of being secular in the United States? Excellent. You do good work, guys. So we've taken up a lot of your time, and I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Sure. Um, so there's two things uh, coming up for me here. I'm in the final stages of completing a book uh, written with Chris Bader, and it's called Insiders, Outsiders, Hiders, and Drifters. And uh, it's a general it sort of outlines and tests a theory of what we call deviance management, which means the strategies people take to manage the stigma of being labeled deviant or in the case of hiding, potentially labeled deviant. Um, so this is a book that outlines the theory for half of the book and then applies the theory to some different topics and case studies. Um, and so this is. It's fully drafted. It's currently under review uh, at a press. And so hopefully this will be out by sometime next year. Um, and the other thing is uh, a book on the psychological, social, and political dimensions of fear in the United States. And so we address issues like xenophobia, Islamophobia, fear of, and perceptions about crime, uh, conspiracy theories. And so we kind of, uh, this is using five waves of data from the Chapman Survey of American Fears. And so um, I'm writing this with Chris Bader and Gordon and Ed Day, who are at Chapman and uh, run that survey. And so this one's under contract with NYU, who's the same publisher for American Secularism. Um, and so that'll hopefully be out by next year as well. And so those are the two things coming up for me. Great. So what keeps me busy at the moment in terms of research is I'm the managing editor of an online journal. So it's the Interdisciplinary Journal of Research on Religion, which uh, interestingly, maybe ironically, we have relatively few things recently about secularism or non-religion. So I would tell anybody who's listening to this who does uh, empirical research on secularism, feel free to submit publications. Um, but one of the things I really like about the journal is that it's uh, freely accessible, so there is no paywall to it. So it's available. I'll do a plug for it. It's religjournal.com. You can search IJRR religion and it will pop up. Um, and we publish across a really wide range of disciplines. So we have psychology, sociology, anthropology, religious studies, history, economics, political science. I'm probably leaving somebody else out. And so I apologize in advance if your discipline wasn't mentioned, but we intentionally take a very broad empirical look at religion and give a lot of avenues for people to publish uh, types of articles that may not be sort of um, reasonable for more standard print journals, but also it allows people to see work from a really wide range of perspectives on the issue. Great. Well, that all sounds really good. So I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And uh, maybe we'll see some of you back with uh, some future publications. But uh, goodbye for now. Thanks for having thank us. You. 
I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Drs. Joseph Baker and Buster Smith about their book, American Secularism, Cultural Contours of Non-Religious Belief. If you Google Joseph Baker and East Tennessee State University, or ETSU, you can find out more about his work. And if you search for IJRR, or the Interdisciplinary Journal of Research on Religion, you will find out more on the journal Buster mentioned. Did you enjoy this podcast? Please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. As a not-for-profit organization, that kind of buzz really helps. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. And you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye, until my next conversation about new books in secularism. 